I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to Ed Bellis. Ed is a security industry veteran and expert and was once named Information Security Executive of the Year. He currently serves as the Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of Kenna Security. Ed is the former CISO of Orbitz and a former Vice President in Corporate Information Security of Bank of America. He's an advisor to Decena and formal advisor to SecurityScoreboard.com, Dharma, and Society of Payment Security Professionals. Ed is a contributing author to the book, Beautiful Security. He's also a frequent speaker at industry conferences, including RSA, Black Hat, and many others. In this episode, we discuss vulnerability management maturity, how to focus on remediation, inventory management, securing cloud services, IoT devices in the enterprise, entrepreneurship, hiring the right people, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Ed, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm good, Doug. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, we, we are in the, the middle of pandemic world. Um, how are you and where are you? <laughs> like most people, I am trapped inside my house uh, with my family and kids. Uh, I am in uh, Chicago, Illinois, where it's very uh, rainy and cold at the moment, uh, but we're, we're making the best of it. Gotcha. Now, is, is being home this much part of your, your regular job, or is this relatively new to be uh, more um, home this much? I would imagine that you had a good amount of stuff that had you on the road at, at times. That is absolutely the case. So, uh, you know, between I, I would occasionally work from home, but for the most part, uh, obviously, we have an office here in Chicago. And as you said, I probably am on the road, I would say at least uh, a week out of every month up and until now, sometimes a couple of weeks per month. So uh, it's it's been nice actually to be home for a while, although it being trapped inside the house the entire time may be a little less nice. Yeah. You know, I'm finding it interesting as I talk to more people, how they've kind of, you know, and I always find security folks are particularly good at kind of adapting and overcoming. It almost seems to be our mantra a little bit, but have, have you found that whether yourself or your organization has been able to adapt well to the change and you know, what are some of the things that you think has particularly worked well as you've modified the way that you kind of do your day to day? Yeah, for, for us, actually, it's been, uh, I'll, you know, knock on wood, it's been a really easy transition to go to complete work from home. In fact, you know, we've, we were kind of founded that way in the, in the early days. And while we have two offices, one here in Chicago and one in San Francisco, I would say probably half of our employees are, are uh, remote um, and working in the field or, or from their home. So it, it hasn't been a big transition. We've got a lot of the, the technologies in place, the, you know, Slack and Zoom and all of the things that you would expect uh, to be able to work uh, from home and, and from the cloud. Uh, the, the issue that we have seen, though, is, is and it varies greatly, is just kind of working with our customers, right? And uh, some of the customers have had very easy transitions, similar to us, and others where we've had customers that are kind of ground zero in New York City, 
uh, that are, you know, there is quite a bit of havoc and upheaval to get everybody in a, a work from home environment. So we've, we, we've, we've seen a fair bit of that as well. Yeah. I can imagine, you know, kind of, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your role at Canada and what kind of prompted you to, to kind of co-found it and start a company, but yeah, you know, I would imagine with, you know, kind of being a CTO that generally requires a good amount of face time, which is, is warranted in many cases because, you know, people are making rel- relatively large, um, buying decisions when it comes to security and there's a lot of faith and looking them in the eye and, and a, sh- a handshake, um, is something that I found in security when, when getting people to that point has been important, but I, I'm imagining that's again, a bit of a challenge now. Yeah, no, that's absolutely the case. And especially uh, for our space where we tend to, you know, we, we've got a, we, we cross a ton of different verticals in terms of our customers, but I would say that, you know, the, the sweet spot for us, uh, horizontally speaking, is, is in the enterprise, right? So we're dealing with a lot of large, uh, very large companies working with the chief security officers, working with the CTOs, uh, working with procurement and all the things that come along with that, right? And, and to your point, right, so a lot of that, that FaceTime is no longer available to, especially to our, our folks in the field. So that is, that is definitely different. Um, yeah, you know, as, as far as myself, you know, co-founded Kenna Security roughly about 10 years ago now, and it was really out of a, a pain point I was having. So prior to this, I was the chief information security officer over at Orbitz, the online travel company, uh, sitting in, in, in that space and dealing all, with a lot of the problems that we're trying to solve here at Kenna Security, uh, specifically in the, in the vuln- vulnerability management space. Uh, and just kind of being buried in the exhaust of our own security tools, right? We had so much data that was coming at us and a very small team to deal with all of that data and try to figure out, make sense of it, prioritize it and get it into the right people's hands to make the most important decisions and and make sure that the most important security vulnerabilities out there are being remediated on a, on a timely basis. And it was it was a, a challenge to say the uh, to, to make it an understatement there. Um, and uh, so I started talking to a bunch of my peers thinking, Hey, you guys, this, this has got to be a solved problem, right? I don't know how, uh, anybody else is doing this and, and started talking to those folks and finding out that they were doing a lot of the same things that that we were doing, right. Which was, uh, at the time, either massive spreadsheets or homegrown databases, and they're funneling in all of this data to and a team of people just kind of weeding through and, and analyzing each and all of these vulnerabilities to say, this is important, this is not, this is real, this is a false positive, et cetera. And then getting those real important things into the right people's hands through bug trackers and ticketing systems and all that and marching it all through to close. Um, and what we are finding out is we were able to, you know, at best, you know, by the time we go out and, and fix those important things and then come back and reassess and rescan is that the pile grew by 200% because of the, the amount of time and effort it, it took to do that. And we were still not sure if we were necessarily fixing the riskiest things. Uh, so that's when, you know, we kind of, I called Jeff Hewer, who's our co-founder and said, we got to go out and build something to solve this. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Yeah. It seems, you know, it's funny, well, funny, but scary too. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that it's the basics when it comes to asset management, vulnerability management, uh, you know, inventory of just even users, um, still is that kind of pain point. It's that 
fundamental problem that you see on all the risk management frameworks and even uh, to the NIST CSF now and critical controls is you got to know what you have. And it seems to be that a lot of organizations uh, still struggle with that. And and now I would imagine it's even more of a challenge with the increased use of uh, web applications and where now so many endpoints have left the perimeter and are having to kind of be outside of a centrally managed uh, world. Are there still ways to address that? It seems like, you know, the core problems are still there, but it's just now we're having to adapt to it in, in maybe different technology scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. While everything keeps growing and, and, and nothing seems to go away and it only gets more and more complex, right? And as you can imagine, that makes it, it, it even more difficult for the security practitioner to to deal with. Um, and, and what we've seen in our customer base, right? And we see customers that have as little as just a, a few thousand vulnerabilities all the way to customers that have well in the hundreds of millions of vulnerabilities across their enterprise, right? And you're never going to fix all of that stuff. Um, and what we've actually seen is on average, not even mattering what size the company is, right? The smallest of companies all the way to the Fortune 10 uh, with millions of assets, they can on average fix about one in 10 vulnerabilities, right? And the, the very best top performers are fixing about one in four. So at best, you're going to say 75% of those vulnerabilities that you're looking at at any given time are never going to be fixed, right? So you better when you go out there to to put all the time and resources and people towards fixing these vulnerabilities, uh, make sure you're making the right decisions and fixing the ones that are actually going to uh, end up in a breach if you don't. Yeah, it's always that um, that. <laughs> kind of scary scenario when you when you kind of show people uh, what's going on behind the curtain with their environment and you start running vulnerability management they're like i i wish i didn't know um it seems overwhelming <laughs> at times um how do you kind of help organizations prioritize because i think that's the challenge i've seen is they you know a lot of, a lot of folks directors of it or, or CISOs are just like look i got enough on my plate now you just gave me more um you know how do you kind of steer them in the right direction yeah, that, that's really kind of what we're out to solve, right, is not to give them more, but to give them uh, more efficacy uh, in terms of what they're looking at. So what we'll do is we'll we'll take in, obviously, all of that data from all of those various sources. And as you mentioned, you know, they might have stuff in the cloud, they might have stuff on premise in their own data centers and their offices. They'll have infrastructure and application vulnerabilities and all of these different things. So we try to be pretty data agnostic and source agnostic for that stuff. Because uh, we know that our customers have a lot of different tools and, and, and we want to make sure that we're fitting into their process. So we pull all that data in and then, we, you know, we're going to combine it with even on the asset side, uh, if they've got asset management systems or CMDBs and things like that, so that we can get more context around what they, it is that they're trying to protect. How important are these assets? Um, you know, are they behind, uh, you know, three layers deep into your internal network? Or are they exposed out to the Internet? What are the business processes associated with those assets? What's the criticality of those business processes, et cetera? And then we'll take all of that and then we combine it with threat and exploit intelligence that we're collecting across the Internet. And we're gathering a lot of fidelity around not only, you know, the availability of exploitation uh, weaponized exploits and exploitation kits and things like that. So, you know, to judge how easy it is to exploit a vulnerability, but then we're actually looking at the fidelity of successful exploitations in the wild. And we'll uh, take that a step further. And it's not just a binary yes or no, but we'll look and say, well, what's the volume and velocity of this? Are, are we seeing, did we see this attack once last month? Or are we seeing this 10,000 times an hour, every hour? 
Um, we'll look at the, the behavior of malware and uh, any vulnerabilities that are being exploited by malware. We'll understand popular targets and, and you know, how, and, and what I mean by that is, is this, how prevalent is this vulnerability, not only across our customer base, but across, uh, across the, the, the technology uh, platforms themselves, right? So in other words, if I've got a vulnerability that's in one of the more recent versions of you know, Microsoft Office, that's gonna have a high prevalence across the internet, right? So uh, it's gonna end up being a popular target versus something that is, you know, it's it's a, a piece of open source software that only a few people are using and, 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 and not gonna be that sort of popular target. And we take all of this information in to basically understand what is the likelihood of any one exploitation event happening on any given asset and then if that happened, what is the impact of that exploit? And that's how we give every every single asset within a customer's environment a risk score of zero to 1,000. Uh, and then we'll take all of that data, of course, and then turn it on its head. So customers have the ability to kind of slice and dice up their own environments and and create these different groups. So they can say, this is, you know, my DMZ or my uh, everything that's in my uh AWS uh, infrastructure, or this is my everything that's in my data center in LA, my office in Chicago, whatever it is. Uh, and we'll give them a risk score for those groups of assets to understand what is you know, the likelihood and impact of anything happening across that group of assets. And then turn that data on its head to say, but here is a prescribed bang for your buck list to say, if you're gonna do, as an example, 10 things, here are the 10 things you can do across all of these assets that's gonna reduce your risk the most with the least amount of effort. Uh, and then we can obviously tie into all of their workflow, their ticking systems, their defect tractors, et cetera, to kind of enable that, that remediation process to kick off and, and flow smoothly. Yeah, I try to, that's, it's, it gives me, um, you know, whether it's a confirmation bias I need to hear, but, you know, it's funny because you sit there and you do a lot of these things and whether, you know, having used, you know, all, all the popular vulnerability management and, and scanning tools, it, it feeds you back a lot of colors, which is great. It's good to put things mm -hmm. in uh, context that way. But a lot of times people start pointing at the, the red thing saying, oh, my God, we have too many reds. It's like, OK, but that you know, it might be a, a segmented off on its own VLAN printer that might just have a vulnerability, but the likelihood's low. Um, and putting things into context seems to still be a challenge that a lot of folks, you know, I would say in security operations tends to be still a challenge is saying, well, maybe we don't have to focus on the reds. We can, this, you know, in business context, those, those yellows are really where the risks are. Um, do you find it still hard for people to kind of follow that logic? Or are they just still folks become color drawn or how, how do you get them out of that mentality? Yeah, sure. So it's a good question. And, and I'd say it varies across customers. Obviously, there's a little bit of selection bias in, in our own uh, data set, right? And the fact that people are coming to us to solve this problem. So in that sense, right, they've, they've, mm -hmm. they've gone, they've gone, if you're going through the stages of grief, right, they've gotten <laughs> to that past the, the acceptance and said, okay, I've got to go out and, and, and solve this, this issue. Um, that said, you know, probably the, the biggest uh, thing that we do is as we implement new customers, right, and we've got a customer success team that's out there that's kind of dedicated to doing just this, is they'll kind of gauge the customer's own vulnerability management maturity and where they are on that path and then put together a plan for how they get to, you know, that, that ultimate level. Because ultimately, we're guiding them away from the old world of just counting vulnerabilities or is, is your example of just counting red vulnerabilities. Oh my God, I've got 
you know, 10,000 criticals, right? Um, because the vulnerability itself is just one piece of, of the puzzle when you're measuring risk, right? And that's ultimately what you want to do. And a lot of customers are actually coming to us because they're saying, hey, I'm tired of this, this, this endless treadmill of counting vulnerabilities because I'll never get ahead that way because no matter how many I close, I'm going to open just as many or, or probably more. Um, so how do I understand what my risk is and then how do I, what do I do to drive that risk down? And that's where we want them to be from, you know, how they're thinking about vulnerability management. And then we will put kind of that plan in place to show them how to get there using both the tools, but, uh, obviously a lot of the work that goes into it, it's not, if, you know, you get people who say, well, how long does it take to, for you to onboard you and, and, and get up and running using your tool? And, and the answer is the, the technical piece for us is easy, right? <laughs> Setting up the connectors and getting the data in and piping all that through that. That's the, that's the short pull and the 10, if you will, it's, it's the people and process around that. Right. And now that we're starting to use risk uh, as a, as a measure for vulnerability management, instead of counting criticals and things like that, how do I handle reporting? Who does this go to? How do I handle the workflow? How do I drive that risk down? How do I ingrain that into my processes across the business? That's where you, that's where a lot of the legwork comes in. And that's where our customer success teams tend to, to work with our customers to, to kind of implement those processes. Yeah. And it sounds, you know, it's, it's funny. You said the R word, which I try to drive home with a lot of people about risk and it's, it's ultimately what we do. Um, You know, you can't completely bulletproof an organization. You're, you're always trying to stay one step ahead. Um, And I find that, you know, sometimes security practitioners get in their own way when they forget that and they forget to put things in the contents context of risk and how to make measurable outcomes because at the end of the day a cio cto cso's have to go to some board or somebody else that has um, the checkbook and say hey look you know here we want to make this investment and they want to hear it in terms of equitable risk and i find that we tend to get away from that at times. We, we, we want to talk about the blinky lights and, and look, I'm as guilty as anybody else for using the word cybersecurity to market things. But, you know, if it was the RSA risk management conference, I don't think we would get as many people going. Um, you know, it's, it tends to be this, this, this focus. So, you know, is it part, do you find yourself getting more of that customer success in being able to enable you know, more of the technology base with inside organizations to discuss risk, or at least giving them the tools so they can go to the business leaders and kind of speak on the same language. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's it's great because, the, yes, we'll, we'll give them their risk scores and we'll obviously show them how to drive that risk down. But we, you know, it's also very, it's not opaque, right? We, we unveil everything under the covers to show them why they should spend time fixing this versus that, right? In the in the end, it's a prioritization game, right? That everybody comes to us realizes that at some point, you know what, I can't fix every single vulnerability. So why should I fix this one versus this one? And we find actually some of our most successful customers end up, uh, they've got a, they have these dedicated vuln management teams, but it ends up being in a, in a spot where it's mostly, if you looked at the user base within their Kenna instance, it's mostly IT ops and developers and all of these people that are responsible for the remediation work. And it becomes a bit of a self-service exercise for them, right? And they almost take themselves out of a lot of that process because they, they're, they're much more just handling the questions and, and things like that because we're, we're showing them 
this is exactly why this is an absolutely critical thing for you to fix. This is why we think it's really highly, uh, highly likely that there is going to be an exploit here because here's all the data behind this vulnerability. Here's everything we know about this asset. Here's everything that we know about the context of the things that are running in here to give you all of that context up front to say, oh yeah, I get it. We, we got to go out and fix this, right? So it, it becomes less of a, a lot of times, you know, certainly in my days uh, back at Orbitz and, and other places in the security practitioner side, vulnerability management was not only, you know, somewhat of an exercise in futility uh, dealing with the volume of vulnerabilities. It was also a bit of an adversarial relationship you would see between the security teams and the ops teams of saying, hey, you got to fix this. Hey, I, I, I don't have time to fix this or I think this is a false positive or I've got 10 other things I need to do. And it, it just becomes this back and forth. And we're trying to kind of eliminate that friction. Yeah, and I can imagine too, you know, we, <laughs> again, it's it's where I'm, I'm always pondering the moments when cybersecurity kind of almost gets in its own way a little bit and thinking more recently around some of the the Zoom news and, and talk to some mm-hmm. other folks on the podcast, you know, it certainly brought a lot of attention. And, you know, there can be an argument that any any press is good press when we talk about cybersecurity, but I also felt that at times I'm like, you know, people are starting to pile on in a little bit of a bandwagon, you know, call out a vulnerability on things when I kind of felt like there was an emperor has no clothes moments to say, well, look, if we're adopting a lot of remote technology, that's probably one of the least risky ones when I see a lot of RDP ports open, when I see a lot of other things that people are standing up without multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, do we, when we sensationalize a lot of these vulnerabilities, does that kind of hurt some of our cause at times? I, I totally agree with you there. And I think that a lot of the stuff surrounding Zoom was was certainly overhyped at times as well. Actually, one of the things, uh, you know, we do this, uh, this joint research work with uh, the Scientia Institute, which is uh, Wade Baker, Jay Jacobs, and a few of the other folks over there that... I don't know if you know them, but they were like, uh, I know Wade was like one of the original guys from the Verizon DBIR report mm-hmm. and things like that. So what we, we've been doing is a lot of different uh, research on vulnerabilities. And one of the things that I've been kind of chatting with them in the background of things that I'd like to dive into is, okay, let's take a look at, uh, as an example, every vulnerability out there that's been given a logo and a marketing site and all of these things. <laughs> yeah. And let's take a look at that and, you know, what what are all of the threat and exploitation events and everything we've seen with that? And how does that compare to the others, right? Because we often see, uh, and sometimes the, it is warranted, the attention, but but oftentimes it's not, right? And, and to your point, we, we could see some other vuln that's out there that's been around three, four, five years that's getting you know exploited still left, right, and center, and nobody's paying attention to it because there isn't a lot of hype around it. Um, and and I, I totally agree that there there's certainly a, a bit of bandwagonism that goes on and, and definitely some piling on sometimes when when there shouldn't be. Um, yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot. We, we try to pride ourselves in being very data driven in everything that we do. Um, so anytime there's hype, uh, that's one of the first things we'll, we'll look at is, okay, so what are we actually seeing uh, and what's happening in the real world here as, as to whether or not this is something that we should be concerned about or not. In, in a little bit on that, that other spectrum of that um, is, you know, and I'm sure you've dealt with it in e-commerce and finance, but compliance standards and 
the various ones that are out there, you know, for financial services, regulatory ones that come from the government and et cetera. Um, but, you know, I've spoke to a lot of people that have had those issues of doing vulnerability management in PCI environments and say, gosh, we spend so much time really trying to either manage things that can't be changed because, you know, it's, a, it's an old SSL version and we, we can't get it up. And so therefore the compliance standard has to change or like putting out fires on things that, you know, have to meet a standard but aren't addressing the real world problems. Um, have you seen that, can, I guess, continue to still be a problem? What, what are your thoughts on standards and, and things around that and its efficacy in, in building programs? Yeah, I, most definitely. I, I can't count on the number of times I've probably put my head through a wall uh, regarding PCI assessments in, in my prior life, for sure. Um, in fact, you know, I remember, I, I think, in fact, I know they've changed this since, but I remember when they first, uh, when they first came out with all the PCI requirements and guidelines, uh, and I was at Orbit at the time, and I believe at first, I, I forget if it was a CVSS four and above or six above, I think it was a four and above, uh, was required, you had to fix anything with that, which in theory, if you actually look at the distribution of CVSS scores across all the vulnerabilities, it effectively meant you had to fix about 90% yeah, of all of your vulnerabilities. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so why, why, why call it a scoring system at all? Just say you got to fix everything. Yeah. Um, which was nearly impossible. Now, I think they have since uh, actually implemented some guidelines around taking a risk-based approach, which obviously is something that we would endorse. And I think it's, it's we're starting to, we're, you know, the good news is I'm starting to see a lot more, especially in the last two years, um, a lot more of adoption towards, hey, we're going to take a risk-based approach, even when it comes to compliance, because compliance itself is just another risk, right? Um, so that's that's been the good news. The, the bad news is I think we probably still have a long ways to go. I, I definitely see a lot of checking the box still to this day. Hey, you know, we've got to, we got to go, the, the, you know, they say that we got to go out and put this DLP solution in place. Uh, so we've got it and it's up and it's running. Is anybody checking it? No. Are there any alerts set for it or are we, you know, looking for anything that's the, the data that we might have, maybe not. Uh, you still see a lot of that out there. It is certainly as you see more technology kind of come into play here. Um, you know, some of them maybe carry some some legacy technologies. And, you know, what comes to mind mm-hmm. certainly is things like IoT with either hard-coded in, quite frankly, vulnerabilities that can't be changed or updated in this firmware and that can have open ports and just things that can't be patched. I mean, do you see... Uh, more of those in the enterprise environment where people are like, wow, this is cool. Let's plug it in, but might not do the you know proper network segmentation. And these things could be potential pivot points. Yeah, for sure. We see, we see plenty of that. Uh, I'm sure we're not unique there. Um, you, it's, it's amazing how many different devices there's um, uh, a, a, probably a small plug for, I don't, I don't know if you know HD more, but he's got a mm-hmm. new thing out now called uh, rumble networks. And he recently uh, created a free plan. So I figured oh, I'll, I'll set this up on my home network then and, and see what it is. And it basically just goes out and does an asset discovery of absolutely everything that it can touch. And I'm amazed just even in my home network, like how many, I, I had no idea I had about, you know, 50 plus assets sitting here in my house, whether it was a TV or a car or anything else. It's like all these different things running Android and uh, IoT devices and all kinds of different things. And imagine 
putting that uh, in an enterprise environment where you already have a million plus assets, there's all kinds of stuff out there, right? And, and in terms of network segmentation, uh, it's <laughs> it's probably, uh, I, I don't want to say it doesn't exist, but it's the, there's not a lot of it, not nearly as much as you would think. I would have to imagine that that does increase some risk with inside organizations now, with particularly in the current environment with so many people working from home and just saying, well, you know, I have... What's what's the big deal? I'm, I don't have anything on my home network. And as you point out, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I've run enough scans on my network, but I'm thinking where I've missed things. <laughs> and I probably have a, a, at least another 20% more. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I feel like I have stuff pretty well segmented, but you never know. And it's it, it's got to raise that concern that if you are a CISO and you have all of a sudden you shifted to a huge workforce that is remote um, and you don't have – not easy necessarily to throw up things like split tunneling um, that there, there could be potential things that are introduced into your environment from home networks now. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and I would say um, obviously we're, we're starting to see, and I, I hate to even use the term because I felt like it was a valid term at one point and now it's definitely become a, a marketing buzzworthy term, but the, the zero trust uh, movement that we see, right. Is, is a lot about that. The fact that you can't rely on the network, you have to assume whatever network you're on is compromised. So what do you do about that? And how do you, you know, what kind of approach do you take towards authentication and validating a device and understanding the, the cleanliness of the device and all of these things um, it's and it's it's no small feat for a, an enterprise where you're talking about so many different devices and so many different assets that they've got to manage both in and outside of a network it's it's not an NVL problem you talked earlier uh, at the beginning of our conversation you mentioned I think was the the, the CIS controls you know I think the, the first thing on there is is know your assets, right? That seems like such a simple thing to to say, but man, that is one of the biggest, most complex problems that there is out there right now. Yeah, I, I kind of have a a sick joy of doing that in client environments where I'll say, you know, give me your asset list and your your subnet ranges in advance. And they're like, we only have this. I was like, all right, because I discovered about twice as many of that. And they're like, that's not possible. And I'm like, here's every single DNS resolution and IP, like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And it seems to be that I forgot about that. Um, so, again, it comes back to that that basics. I mean, I mean, in this kind of zero trust world and, and where we do do have increasingly flat networks, does that um, – is network segmentation a increasingly harder – I mean, it's always been pretty difficult to do that um, to a certain level. Um, is it getting even harder? Is it something that you know we still should be so worried about fixing? Or is it just come down to, you know what, we really just need to know what the vulnerabilities are and kind of have a, a better mean time to respond? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the, the, the truth in anything is it's probably a combination mm -hmm. thereof. Um, I don't think... Uh, you know, you're, you're not, you're never going to get to probably the, uh, you know, the, 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 I forget the, the Google documents that, that, that spurred the, the whole zero trust uh, movements mm -hmm. uh, to begin beyond computing, right. Completely in a, in a large enterprise. So you, you gotta, you gotta put some compensating controls in the network where you can, but I, I don't think it's gotten 
worse. I think it's gotten larger. I think it's gotten more complex. I think people are starting to become a little bit more grounded in reality than they certainly were 10 years ago, right? I, I would say if you ask somebody about their compartmentalized network a decade ago, they probably were just more overconfident in it than they are today. <laughs> gotcha. And, and certainly with, you know, with things like Docker containers and things within AWS where we're seeing more microservices, um, I mean, do, do you get the sense that some people that are doing network architecture deployment, you know, from across the board, from the, the, the people that plan and, and kind of cut the checks for that, might have a false sense of security at times with a lot of that? That they're like, you know what, we don't have to manage the infrastructure, so there's way less vulnerabilities, but they don't think about maybe vulnerabilities and things they're developing. Yeah, possibly. It's uh, It goes without saying, right, so that you're always going to have pockets of that. I would say uh, the complexity itself and that there's so many different things and so many different services to, to worry about now. Obviously, I, I'm totally on board that complexity is is definitely the, the enemy of security. Um, I, but I've seen other changes that, that are for the positive, right? So I've seen things... Uh, you know, we, we talk about how how crazy, you know, when Agile came out, so everybody's talking about how crazy it is and, and how could you control it and how, you know, how are you going to be able to have all these security checks and gates and things like that. But the positive there is that they can detect and respond to things much quicker too, right? So when the vulnerability does come out or I do introduce a vulnerability in my product, my ability to remediate that vulnerability doesn't take me months now as, as I have to go through the, the, the more traditional waterfall and change and change committee and everything else. I can quickly react to that. So in, in some cases, there's there's some positives there. I can say one of the things we do, actually, uh, I mentioned some of the work we did with Scientia. We do uh, internally and, and publish as part of these reports what we kind of internally call the, the state of the union metrics or the, these same metrics that we measure year over year to try to understand where things are going. And obviously, there's definitely some confirmation bias in the fact that we're looking at kind of customers here. But uh, one of the things we look at is is capacity and specifically high risk capacity or the, your ability to fix and remediate high risk vulnerabilities uh, at a rate versus how, how many you open or open or introduce in your environment, right? So in other words, am I closing more than I'm opening or opening more than I, I'm closing? Am I introducing more security debt or am I reducing that debt over time? And we've seen a flop of that over a year. In fact, um, just in a, a one-year time frame, we saw uh, about a year ago where about a third of the folks out there were actually reducing debt. And now that's well over half are reducing that. So we're seeing big jumps in, in that. So the ability to kind of focus on things that matter and then go out and actually do something about it uh, means that we're starting to see improvements in those areas as well. Gotcha. Now, you know, kind of turning to the fact, you know, from advising customers, but to being kind of a company owner, I mean, what, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, there, you saw a problem, you want to fix it. But, you know, I think one of the things I like to talk about with folks um is, you know, kind of, a, I have an upcoming presentation, one of the ISA events is, you know, kind of hang your shingle about going out and starting your own company. I've done a couple, but I think people kind of have this Shangri-La thing. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have so much free time. I'm going to have full control. And what are some of the things that you see are some of the challenges out there that, you know, you may not have expected getting into um, starting your own company and some advice you would give to others that maybe want to follow that same path? 
Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, first off, uh, none of those things are true. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't have any free time and you certainly don't have full control ever. Um, uh, above and beyond that, though, I mean, probably the, the biggest things I would say is it's going to take you way longer and way more resources than you think it's going to take you. Um, and that is kind of... Uh, matters a lot really especially in those early days because you think you see all these success stories about these folks who they're overnight unicorns right and they go in and they've they found a company and within two years they're worth a billion dollars that almost never happens which is why it's in the news to begin with right you've there's a lot to you know the grind of finding product market fit working with customers being your own salesperson if you're if you're a security person being a salesperson is going to be very foreign to you but you have to do it right and you, guess what you also have to be your own marketing person you have to be your own pr person you have to be your own accountant all of these things that you never thought you'd have to be or have any frankly any real expertise in uh it becomes a, a really big deal so obviously uh when you go and you you go out to start your own thing selecting the your right co-founder is going to be your co-founders is going to be super uh, important uh somebody that not only you can you know you're going to be able to get along with, uh, but ultimately somebody that balances your skill sets. All right, if you're all, if you all bring in the same skill sets, you're still going to have all the same gaps that you're going to have to go out and hire. And the fact that you have to go out and hire those and cost money and it costs time, all things that uh, you don't really have as as a startup founder. So, you know, those are the things I think back with and. It's always amazing to me, and it's proven time and time again true over the last 10 years, certainly, that it's, uh, I've always underestimated just how long it takes and how many resources it takes to do. Yeah, along those lines, you know, one of the things that we certainly, I think, you know, the numbers kind of change uh, often, but, you know, like hiring folks, and you see it both, I'm imagining both you've seen it uh, and. and over the years of running practices, but a company, but you know, what are some of the things that you look for? Some of the challenges that you see of trying to overcome when bringing in good people and retaining them? Yeah, that's, that, that's a good question. And, and, and uh, actually one of the, you know, we, we were talking earlier about COVID and working from home. And actually one of the things that I'm hopeful that will change a lot of this is that you don't necessarily all have to be in the same spot in the same room. Uh, to make things happen, right? Which opens up the talent pool for companies quite a bit, right? If I can hire somebody remotely in Ohio, uh, then I don't suddenly, like I'm here in Chicago, I don't have to confine myself to only the talent that's here in Chicago. Um, so that's that that's that's one for sure. Um, but that also comes with its own set of challenges, especially at the hiring phase, right? Because there is something to being able to sit in that room with that person and understand them and get to understand their skill sets and what they bring to the table. And, and sometimes it's easier for cer certain roles in your company, right? I might be able to assess somebody's technical skill set at a distance at much better than uh, assessing their, their sales ability or their customer success ability or something like that, right? So it's all, it's all different. One of the things that I've kind of learned is to, you know, there's there's a few things that I think that I know pretty well or really well, and and then bring in uh, other people that know the other things, right? And as you start to grow, you start to grow some of that talent around you. Uh, I, I 
I might not really know how to interview a CFO, but I know three other people, maybe they don't work with me here at my company right now, but I know them in the industry and I know they can help me evaluate what a CFO needs, right? So being able to rely on your network, both internally and externally is huge. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, one of the things that I've, I've seen that folks struggle with um, in, in the startup game a little bit is, is knowing when to ask for help and who to ask for. Um, there's almost a little bit of a, gosh, I have a little bit of a posture syndrome. I don't want to, sh- I have to show everybody I know what I'm talking about at all times, but that's a bit of a fallacy and it, it actually kind of sets you up for limitations. So um, are, are there other things like that, you know, that you really see people say, God, you know, had I only known this 10 years ago, uh, this, this could have really been a hurdle. I, I could have gotten around quicker. Yeah, and when I first went out and, and co-founded Kenna, one of the things I did was go out and establish kind of a, a board of advisors that would help me in those types of things. And I went and intentionally picked a bunch of people in and around the ancillary of the security industry, but people who had gone out and either founded companies or had skill sets uh, that, that I did not have so that I could use them as part of my network, right? So you give them some advisory shares and you suddenly you put them to work and it's like you have this exceptional talent pool uh, available to you to go out and, and if so long as you bring them very specific tasks, you know, you can get a, a lot of that stuff uh, hammered out really quickly. And, and by the way, that advisory group will tend to change as the as the company grows, evolves, and matures into different stages, you're going to find that you're going to need different skill sets. So you'll you might have a, a, an advisory board for when you first found that looks very different, you know, four or five years in. Gotcha. Well, Ed, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, our, our website is kennasecurity.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am E Bellis, E B E L L I S, and our company Twitter is Kenna Security. Well, great. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And again, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Awesome. Thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Stay, uh, stay safe, too. Thanks, you too. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.